It's Sunday morning in northwest London. The next station is South Harrow. Please mind the gap between the train and the flag. The streets are quiet. The city is still asleep. But when you walk down Rainer's Lane, you notice a pub. The Man of Arden. All the county flags are sure to catch your attention. Blues, whites, greens, reds. It's already packed. Pints have been bought. Stories swapped. There's excitement in the air. Today is the day of the Connacht football and the monster hodling final. Oh, thanks. How are you? I went into the Glen dressing room and the man sitting beside me, he says, what are you doing here, boy? I said, I'm, well, I'm just over. I said, we're playing you in the next round if you win today. Who oh, I am, I'm Ambrose Gordon from London, St Gabriel's. And, oh, you're very welcome, boy. And that was Christy Ring, the great uh, legendary Christy Ring I was sitting beside. This is the landlord of the Man of Arden, Ambrose Gordon. Former Galway and London hurdler, entrepreneur, playboy, and one of Ireland's most modest exports. I was a bit of a ladies' man. I enjoyed, you know. I remember it was on on, on the late late show. I think on Pat Kinney's show there a couple of years ago, four or five years ago. And um, this is true. Um, Rod Stewart was on it, and Pat Kinney says to him, Rod, he said, um, "You've had more than five hundred women in your life, girlfriends." Uh, oh, I, uh, yes, 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 just around that, 500, yes, Rod Stewart says. And I swear I was watching it. <clears throat> I think I had a girlfriend on my arm at the time, and I thought, 500? No doubt I had a 1,000. No doubt about it. Oh, here's Kevin. Kevin, come here a minute, I want you. Yeah. Kevin, come here. Come over here a minute. What I liked about John was I would love to have been educated to the level that John was educated. I'd probably be the Taoiseach now, you know what I mean? You wouldn't have heard of Inda Kenny. Come here. Uh, we'll, we'll go over to him. Come, come over here to Kevin. There is one thing you're guaranteed in the Man of Arden. Apart from free sandwiches at half-time, stories, stories, and yes, you guessed right, more stories. You'd have an old punch-up with a gun of men outside and... Maybe during the week, you know, you'd have two doormen. There would be no hats or anything on the doormen, two hardy boys, there was any bit of trouble. But there was no such thing as a stabbing or anything. It was uh, maybe a black eye Monday morning, but, I mean, what was a black eye in the 80s? Uh, he was here last night. And what, what time did you leave? You can't shut the man up. <laughs> yeah, five o'clock this morning. He, yeah, that's... he played a league game in intermediate football for Kingdom. He played a senior hurling championship with Gabriels and at six o'clock he played a senior football championship for Kingdom against the Gary Owen. Three matches the one day. I carried him home. He never complained sitting in the back of the Morris Minor coming home. He never complained. That's for Ben Carroll's. Someone's losing betting slips there. There is one story that's bigger than all the others. In this pub, in this part of the country, it's the story. With me here, I have a Kenny man. Tommy, uh, Tommy was here last week. It'd be the whole week. Uh, Sam, we just hold for the national anthem. Everybody now is standing to attention. And that's one thing here in London or in the pub. Everybody respects the national anthem. Nobody messes around. 
It's about a generation of emigrants, a disconnect from home, and a scheming rogue entrepreneur who tapped into their need to stay in touch. Not like today. It's about a time when you couldn't watch televised GAA games in Britain. Only Ambrose Gordon found a way, one that made him a lot of money and brought him a lot of trouble. The story has to begin somewhere, and it may as well be here, because this is where it all started. For though, for though, it was the centre of the GAA scene in London, and believe me, it was for though, for though. Where we are now, we're coming up, up to probably the highest point in London. Um, back in, in, in the early 60s, when we were at no direct contact uh, by TV or RT with Ireland. This is where of a Sunday afternoon for the All-Ireland for the Championship in hurling and football where the old boys had come up to the top of the hill. A place where Gaelic games were once banned after a stray schlitter struck a walker and her dog. You're up here, you can see it, see the flag flying there, you can see the old seats surrounded by the bushes. This is the highest point now. A place where a very young Ambrose, with wide lapels, large flares and sideburns, went religiously every Sunday. Sometimes, you know, they'd bring the clothes hangers with them and they'd extend the aerial with a couple of clothes hangers and that gave them, you know, a better sound. This is Hampstead Heath, the best location in London for picking up Radio Air. Well, you could get, of a Sunday afternoon, you, you, you'd probably get between 100, 200 people up of a Sunday afternoon in all different positions. You'd see them always trying to, whoever be up earliest would get the, the most prime position and they'd be maybe sitting on top of, there could be an old stone or anything like that. The quality, it was good, you know. They had certain little radios, like we always remember the old Bush radio, now you have, it's, it's much more modern. You have all the cars going by. You would have very, very few cars in in the early 60s. And um, be, yeah, the sound would be just the radios. You could hear a radio, um, you know, away. You wouldn't hear the sound of a car then. Uh, you know, people had come from the old Galtimore the night before and they'd be just sitting down talking, a few hangovers. On, on to your left-hand side, you have Crickle, Cricklewood. And there were thousands of Irish here in the 60s in Cricklewood. Uh, that's where you had the dance halls. You had the, 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 the uh, Galtimore in Cricklewood. You had the Forum in Kentish Town. Then you had the old Camden Town. Then you had the Manor House. You had all those dance halls where you'd have 2,000 people of a Saturday night. It was part of their weekend, part of their tradition, to hit off and have a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, the, the pubs used to open that time between 12 and 3 and open again at 7. So that, that, that four hours, you know, the drift out of the pubs and they come off up to hear the match, go back to the pub that night and talk about it. So you're probably wondering what Connemara men with transistor radios on the hill have to do with the British High Court and piracy charges. Stay with us. We're nearly there. Patience is a great thing, 
as many a Fermanagh Wicklow supporter will tell you. I remember I came up in 63 when I heard so much about it and it was um, the Galway-Dublin final and uh, Jack Mangan, all those players, Ali Freeney was playing for Dublin, Jack Mangan for Galway and it was a very controversial finish, very tight finish I remember and then afterwards we had the three in a row for Galway uh, I used to often pop back up and always get around, ask the old boy who's got the best radio and you see the biggest crowd around the, the radio to give out the best sound. It was half-time in the Connacht final and I can tell you there are some happy-looking Sligo supporters here as they lead Mayo by two points. Always a big day, big Mayo, a lot of people, especially up in South Harrow. There are supposed to be, there's 32,000 settled Irish in Harrow and I would say maybe 10% of them are from Mayo. I got to run out with Galway in 1961. I remember in Banlaslow playing with the great Joe Salmon middle of the field. I was marking a man called, it was in the league game again, Westmeath, Jobber McGrath. And, um, you know, we were, we were playing down at Clarem Bridge one evening and um, the Lord to Mercy and Father Welsh says, I told him, I said, I'm thinking of going to London, going to England. And he said, young lad, you're too good to go. But you did go, Ambrose. Suitcase under one arm... Harl under the other. So we left. I left in 61 and I came over to my sister in Earl's Court. Ambrose grew up in the parish of Kilimer, the one-time home of a reclusive saint. And he was never destined to follow in the same footsteps. I got a job, a great man from Galway, Pete Crahan. He was the chairman of Gabriel's Rest in Peace. And he got me a job. And he, these first words to me was in the morning, went out, I think I had a saw, a hammer and a bag. That'd be about it. And we're doing a bridge above in Mill Hill and he says, um, just tell if the big the foreman comes around, he says anything, you're 20 years in the game. His father, Hubert, huddled for Galway and was part of the great Tina team that won five Galway senior championships in the 1920s. You know, hear me, my first day, I know I just was able to use the hammer, badly able to use the saw. But we got on and you just went on. And, and, and two years after that, I was a foreman in a building site below in Chelsea. to be set on fire. Then there was a fight around the Windsor Castle pub. The first petrol bombs were thrown, the Windsor Castle was ransacked and then set alight, probably according to police evidence by a stray petrol bomb. 1981 was the year of the Brixton riots. London was on tenterhooks. The bus was driven slowly and jerkily towards the police lines, according to the officer who stopped it, throwing the brick through its window. Not that Ambrose passed much attention. He was more interested in Porrick Horden lifting the McCarthy Cup. And I was maybe a bit wild at the time, and I decided I'd take over the Half Moon and Hollywood Road. And he wrote my contract on the back of a 20 major. 
and he said, I'll pay you £400 a week, he said, and I'll give you 10% over 4000 that, That's what Paddy Murphy, my predecessor, was taking. So that time, there were so many Irish around Hollyby Road, I introduced a band's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. There was no different. Every night was the same. And I had a five-piece band on the stage, and it was rocking. So I took it up to 11,000. So here I am now earning a £1,000 a week at the time, and I didn't... I, yeah, I was good at spending it. My, my, I had a wild lifestyle. But like Saul on the road to Damascus, Ambrose had an epiphany. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where the similarities end. It was 1981, I was in the Tally Ho in Kentish Town. The Tally Ho in Kentish Town is not the place you would associate with divine intervention. And uh, Vince Harty, a Kerry man, had it. And he had a tape on in the pub of the game the, the week before in Ireland. And Cordy Corden sent it high, and now there are three points between them. And I seen the, the crowd, the enthusiastic people was queuing outside the door to get in. But standing among his countrymen, Ambrose saw the light. It was the telly. And I, I watched this video and I thought, there's an opportunity here. The GA is all about routine, time-honoured traditions. Ambrose too began to develop a bit of a unique routine. So I got into my head in 82. Off, I'd hit off. I got went over of a Sunday morning and my two little tapes. He would fly back to Ireland on Sunday morning. His brother Bosco would collect him. Ambrose would give two blank VHS tapes to a lady to record the Sunday game. And then that night, the Sunday game would come on. My lovely lady next door had her two videos and she would tape the game for me. This lady, as Ambrose calls her, would tape the games for him each Sunday. Then he would go to the Sunnybank Hotel for the rest of the day meet all the boys, and there were a lot of them back from Leeds, so there'd be a big table of us, you know, and Willie Whalen was a great character there, and we had Maloney, and we had the Offaly boys and everything, and there was all the country lads. So the crack, the, the, the stories of this guy from Leeds, the North American he's dead now, he was unbelievable. On Monday morning, he would collect his tapes and fly back to London. I would pick them up, put them in my bag... And, you know, Bosco usually brought me to the, play, the in the morning, dropped me off. I'd go out there at quarter past seven. But back in Luton, a quarter to nine, back into London, away I went, you know what I mean? Now, if you walked into Ambrose's house in 1981, you'd see about 20 video machines stacked one on top of the other. The noise alone was deafening. There were cables everywhere. It was like NASA control centre. Gave out a couple to the big boys, like uh, Paddy O'Donnell was in the Crown in Cricklewood, Johnny Sweeney was in the Archway Tavern, and Mick Conway had his pub. So they get they get the first showing at 2 o'clock. 
At about 11 o'clock, a fleet of motorbikes would arrive to collect the tapes. I had six motorbikes going out. So, oh, everybody was happy. Their destination, the Irish pubs of Kilburn, Cricklewood, Fulham Broadway, Ealing and beyond. Get your first little batch out at half past 12, 1 o'clock and uh, everybody was happy. The motorbike's engines used to scream across the Thames. The courier was told it was a tape. Precious cargo. You have to see it to believe it. The courier would shake his head. He had no idea who Joe Cooney was. Pubs would be packed. Absolutely packed. Every every corner, every corner of London, wherever it be, the Cricklewood Tavern up that lane, you know, Kilburn, Kilburn High Road, McGovern's would have two or three hundred people in there. And they would, they would be able to transmit from the public bar to the saloon bar. You know, there were at that time, you know, they'd be shown it on four different televisions, Archway Tavern. They were, they were the Half Moon Holloway Road, which was, was, you know, Bonanza. So now what Kerry must do here, they've got to score a goal as Paul Yoshea takes this late, late free. Pisted on by Owen Liston, out towards Ambrose O'Donovan, Niall Cahalan beside him. Are we seconds away from history? I remember there was a pub in Collardale, the Red Lion, and I got there, Cork and Kerry was a bonanza. That was huge at the time, because there's an awful lot of Cork and Kerry people here. And I got to the front door of the pub, and uh, the, I could see the, the, the manager working behind the bar, and he waved me coming round to the back. It was the last delivery, 8 o'clock in the evening. And I got around to the back, and I gave him, and he, he gave me my 20 quid off. I went, and he just, he just shook his head. You know, he says to me, he says, look, you know, you couldn't get in the front door of the pub. And this was a pub in Colony, like outskirts of London. You know, this, the pub is actually gone now. But that's what it was like in the 80s. You know, you had that many Irish, that many interest, you know, and they just loved it. And then Tuesday morning, then you get the old boys coming in, that tape would be on again, you know, the Sunday game, Michael Lester, you know. To Mackie Sheehy, Mackie the captain, looking for the carry goal that will seal it. Is it there? Yes, it is, I don't believe it. Oh, absolutely unbelievable. It didn't matter what part of London at the time, they were all Irish pubs all Irish customers in there, you know. And they, they had their set times in the evening, you know. Sometimes you wouldn't get to a pub a Monday evening, it could be 8 o'clock. But that didn't matter, because that time the Irish construction worker went out for his pint in the evening. And that was a great enjoyment for him, that he could watch the Sunday game, you know, of a Monday evening. So, of course, he was delighted. And uh, the, the, the generation of the people watching the tapes would be between 30 and 60, now you might be wondering what the top three pubs were, where the tapes were most in demand. Well, in third position, we have the Johnny Sweeney's in Archway. In second place, McGovern's on the Kilburton High Road. Both pubs now long gone. The Lord of Mercy and Peter McGovern, he had, he had McGovern's, the top pub. They had Johnny Sweeney in the archway and they had Paddy O'Donnell, rest in peace, in the crown. So they'd say, if you get the tape to me by one o'clock, 
you know, 20 extra. <laughs> no problem. I had three tapes of them, you know. They were my top customers. So then the, they had three showings, you know, on the day. But Ambrose's number one was Paddy O'Donnell in the crown, a venue once described by Offaly's Tom Connealy as more of a factory than a pub. One great day I remember, it was in 87, uh, the tapes were flying then, and uh, I went to the crown, and uh, Paddy says to me, he said, um, I have the tape, I have the tape, he had eight barmen behind the bar, eight barmen, and there was a, a lorry in the alleyway going into the cellar, and I said, how many kegs is on that, O'Donnell? I used to call him O'Donnell. He used to call me Gordon. He said, there's 83 kegs in that. Oh, my God, he says, you know. So one of the barmen had the Sun newspaper left over in the corner, and he's seen that, and he had a kind of a stutter, and he says, I don't know what that's there for. He says, because he hasn't got time to read it, and he just wrapped it in a big pair of hands, threw it in the dustbin. Oh, Lord, it was hilarious. By 1 o'clock, you'd have 200 people there. Back alive, and it's Christy Hepperlin again. He's going through. He's getting ready to take a shot. And it is a goal. A goal by Christy Hepperlin. And Bill Penny have run him up. Paddy was probably a multimillionaire. He was the loveliest man you ever met. And he was changing checks that time. He'd have the checks in his pocket. And if you give him a check, mostly the young lads that time, you know, the good lads were in a five hundred pound a week with Mac Nicholas. And you give him the check, five hundred quid, and he could he could he'd be talking away to you and he'd be able to count the money with with the finger in the pocket and hand you out five hundred pounds, you know. And he had a girl in the office, he would be changing maybe a hundred thousand pounds worth of checks, and that could be bank holiday Monday. So one of the great stories I had with Paddy was um, he had one of the big screens, you know. So he says uh, to me, the quality of that tape last week wasn't good. I said, what was wrong with it, O'Donnell? He said, look, the picture wasn't great. So I says to him, uh, ah, would you have a bucket of soapy water and um, a wet towel and a little wiper? So I got a little, oh, the boys were watching, you know, oh, the, the lads, some smart lads from Kerry and up around Donegal. Just clean the screen down, clean the screen down. There was an inch of clay in it. That was from their boots over by the bear. An inch of clay in it. Oh, lovely white screen. Put the tape on it well, while you want to see the picture on it. And you hear the roar. And he went, he turned around and he went into the office. Oh, he was mad. You know, to the, to the screen. It wasn't, it wasn't nothing wrong with my tape, you know. And at the top three games, the tapes that had people queuing out the door. At number three is the Connacht Senior Football Final. It brought more parishes together than islands in Clue Bay. Mickey Brennan, inside to Brino. Inside to Dandy Kane. To Stephen Joyce. In at number two, the Munster Senior Football Final, Kerry against Cork. Many a Monday, labourers would feign an injury so they could find their place at the bar. There's the final whistle. There'll be no extra time. Mikey Sheehy, the captain, scoring the goal, the all-important goal in injury time, which was equalised by Larry Tompkins. What an end, what a match. It ends. Kerry still champions. At number one... No prizes for guessing. 
the marquee hurling and football final. Now remember folks, this was long before the internet and mobile phones, so as they stood there on the Monday afternoon, some punters didn't know if their county had won the All-Ireland. Speaking of Connacht finals, back in the Man of Arden, the full-time whistle has gone in McHale Park. Mayo have beaten Sligo. Next up is the Munster final. We have a chance to catch our breath. And here come the free sandwiches. Tray after tray after tray. Now this is Aidan Ryan, great friend of mine from Crockwell. We were just doing talk, talk to Aidan there a minute while he looked for us. My, my father is from the same parish as this man and um, he told me when I was coming over here he told me Ambrose Gordon he went to school with him and another fella Brindy Brain you know and he told me he told me Brindy Brain was a, was a lovely fella go and meet him and sound and do how you will and he told me that man is a gangster stay away from him so, uh, so the first man I called to see was the gangster Ambrose Gordon I see a picture of the great Galway boxer, Sean Mannion, Sean O'Maneen, or Rusmuk. There's the king himself, Henry Sheffield, with his arm around Ambrose. There's the London hurling team who won the Christie Ring Cup this year. A framed newspaper article linking Ambrose to the Dublin hurling job. People say like this... Um this kind of place out here in Rainers Lane it wouldn't really be an ideal spot for a pub but I th- so, so, so I think uh, it's Ambrose that draws the crowd like there's no doubt about that you know and only for Ambrose I think there, I don't think there's anyone else like you travel the world I don't think anyone else would do as well as he does in this pub you know I don't know if that's good or bad but you, you definitely will never ever meet anyone like him the two of you right, come here no no just the two of you together just a little chat there's Fiona. Fiona's from Limerick. Lorraine is from Lockray. Fiona, how long are you? How long are you in London? I'll just have a chat here. With Since February. Since January. End of January. I'm in London uh, two years come September. Among them, I see the two All Ireland intermediate titles he won in the Green of London in 1967 and 1968. I might lose my job if I. <laughs> Uh, no, um, he's really old school, like. Um, but no, he always has the chain on and the Prada T-shirt at the training. We don't talk about sexuality now. We're speaking about you. <laughs> no, I'll tell you a story. If you don't mind me saying this, it's not insulting anybody. Not. He was a good-looking fellow, like you know, but he wasn't as good-looking as me. <laughs> but where were we? Oh, yes, it's 1981, and the money is beginning to pour in. Johnny be there, you know, or somebody be there. 
Yeah, he'll be there on the door to collect it. Bang, in ready, where you go. And hear the roar then for the start of it. That, that was always the best point I used to like about it. Start of the game. Yeah. That period still echoes on Cricklewood Broadway. Especially in Barrett's pub, number 239. No more than a long puck from the crown. We called in to look for Johnny. His son Joe is behind the bar. He used to call on Ambrose for the tapes. But Johnny was back in Tipperary. Johnny's in Ireland, still alright. Is he in Ireland? He's still in Ireland, yeah. He's in Ireland for the last three weeks, four weeks. Yeah, that's Johnny's son Joe now. Who runs the show here. And how would we best get in touch? By the wonders of the mobile phone. There's a man here with RTE. He'd like to have a word with you. Mr Gordon. I'll put him on to you. Hold on. It was a long time ago, and there's poor Johnny back home in Tipperary. Good, good, good. So all this Tipperary winning, all these hurling matches, now you're totally occupied. Just a minute. Feet up. Then getting a phone call. Something to do with Ambrose. And a documentary. Ambrose and a what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, indeed. We leave Johnny alone. It's not fair ringing up a man about something that happened more than 20 years ago. Back to the story. Because by the late 1980s, things were really hotting up. Ambrose was knocking out more videotapes than MGM Studios. That's great. Right, Johnny. Yeah, will you give me a call when you come back and then we meet up? I will. Right, give me a call. When Porrick Horton lifted the McCarthy Cup in 1981, his business was underground. Some of the governors, you know, of course, they would, you know, oh, this week with the Caravelle Sunday, you know what I mean? And then on Monday nights... The Sunday game, you see, they would be advertising it. So, of course, you got to, you know, certain people. But by the time his heroes, Brendan Linsky and Joe Cooney, won the All-Ireland hurling title in 1988, he too had grown into an empire. So, the next thing... I found out things were getting whispers, you know, things were closing in on me. And next thing one morning, I had a visit, a visit to the Spread Eagle and there these two uh, private guys, well-dressed in suits, come in and said they were from RTE. And His tapes were no longer celebrated in hushed tones. If you got the Irish Post or the Harp in 1988, you would see page after page of pubs advertising screenings of Ambrose's Sunday game. Obviously, through the, through the papers, through advertising, that's, that's when it first came to their notice, you know. Ambrose Gordon had hit the big time. He was mainstream. Asking me questions about the tapes, and I said, oh, well, it's nearly finished now, I said. So they decided, you know, they knew I was carrying on. RTE was not happy. Who is showing these games in London? Is someone making money out of this? He wasn't hard to track down. You didn't need Colombo for this one. 
But uh, I think that, you know, then uh, they'd done a deal with me that kept them happy for a while. They didn't shut him down. They wanted a slice of the action. They struck a deal and Ambrose formed a company. Agtel Communications. And in case you're wondering, the AG stands for Ambrose Gordon Television. The RT got a bit cheeky in, in, in 87 and, and I said um, I'd set up a company with them and uh, I called it, uh, the, they christened it, I think they christened it AG Tele- Telecommunications, a lovely bit. So they said they send over the tapes to me, you know, the Monday mornings. So this big batch of stuff would arrive over by courier, you know, from the, I'd have to meet it at the plane or else it was sent in from Heathrow. And it had to arrive into the uh, half moon, wherever I was, of Pimlico. And um, it went on and on. But uh, with the cost of, you know, the, the covers alone, you know, I have a few of them in, the, in there if you ever want to see them. It was, you know, so expensive and so expensive that, you know, I wouldn't have a cup of coffee out of it. You know what I mean? Ambrose didn't really like his new deal. Less money for the main man he felt. And I, I paid them, uh, and we, we'd done it for a few months, but then I just dropped it, went back to the old system. So in 1988, he ditched RTE and went rogue again. The way it was meant to be. RTE were chasing me, you know, and I had just good crack, and I, I, should, I had, so they, they, they decided to take me to court. This son of Kilimer always knew his time would come. From a hurling heartland, he dreamed of Croke Park, of the big day. But instead, he was facing a top judge in the highest court in the land. It's RTE versus Ambrose Gordon in the London High Court. I had this New Zealand girlfriend at the time, you know, I mean, she was a, there was a bit of Dolly Parton about her, you know, she had a nice top pocket, and uh, I brought her down to court, and um, so the judge, they had three barristers, RT had three big barristers, you know, and the judge says to me, oh, Mr Gordon, he says, uh, you promised me, he says, that uh, you will do no more of them tapes. Yeah, no more. I knew it was coming to an end anyway, and I said, that's it, I had a good run, seven or eight years I had, like... And um, so, oh, yeah, yeah, I said, yeah, no, no, Your Honour, no problem, Your Honour, no problem. And he just said, Mr Gordon, well, will you uh, stop doing this pirating? And uh, I put, uh, yes, my Honour, yes, my Lord, yes, my Lord, that's it. I was, you know, the old people in Holloway Road, you know, who would come up of, uh, on their stick to watch the game up to the Mulberry Tree. That was the sort of the old pub in Holloway Road. And that was the only way to see it. So I, I had tears in his eyes. He just, he just, I slap you on the wrist. He says, That's the end of your pirating now, Mr. Gordon. The judge, Lord Fairclough, an esteemed and learned member of the judiciary, had no idea who Joe Cooney was either. And, you know, and I was thinking the following Sunday, Galway was playing awfully in the 1889 All Ireland semi final. I couldn't let my customers down. So I just finished it off and I'd done 115 the following week, and that was nearly the end of it that year then. Eventually, I got through to the papers in Ireland and of a Sunday morning, here was the headlines in the Sunday world, you know, flamboyant Galway man pulled in over pirating tapes and all different headlines. And a Lord and mercy my poor mother, I remember my brother, uh, uh, Hubert Bosco, was telling me that she was going to Mass in Kalimer, half-eight Mass that morning. Of course, the 
papers were out in Brodie's the Sunday World and here was the lad on the front page and that she there was a hedge going up to the church and she kept very close to the hedge you know and so that she wouldn't be seen and she'd leave a bit earlier and get home on the bike before there'd be too much talk about it Back in the Man of Arden the monster final is underway it's Waterford against Tipperary. I played with him back in the, in, in the 60s, Carol, you know, and he's a great lad. He played full-back for the club. He's, uh, well, he says he's 72, but I think he's 73, you know. But he's a, he, he's a young 73, like, always, you know. He's, it's great, he's a great man. Uh, we, they were playing a match below in, in, in um, uh, Ilford against Thomas McCurtain's. So they had only 14 players, and to start the game, you needed 15. So he, had a, he just pulled on a... Um, Jersey over his, you know, his trousers, and out he went, you know. So that, that, that's what you know. That's what he's like. Carl is our chairman, and uh, you know, so long as he's able to walk, you know. And uh, actually, he lighted around the square and he scored a goal, believe it or not. So you know, he got all the glory. He was in all the papers. So this, that just comes natural, you know. You don't see them in with a walking stick, and that's why because uh, you know that their, their life was 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 always around hurling. You never see a good hurler carrying a walking stick. More than 20 years later, Irish emigrants still gather in London pubs to watch Gaelic games. But the spirit of Ambrose lives on. Listen, Graham, you're off to Manchester, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. went out this morning, down to... Where'd you go? Luton, wasn't it? Yeah, bought a caravan in Luton, 800 quid. There is a trick that some publicans do. You buy an Irish sky card and use it in London... And hey presto, you get all the Irish channels, RTE and GAA games, free. The Sunday game, live. No tapes, no extra costs. We would like to state categorically that Ambrose would never do such a thing. Just talking about the game. It's a good game of hurling. That's very good, Jim. Yeah. So I, uh, I mean, you know, if, if Milan probably is still one of the most dangerous players to have.